0: And we are live back with another episode of shifting the narrative on everything autism. I'm Torin Kearns. As usual, I'm joined by the Autism Sage herself, Mama Bad. And how are you?
1: I'm doing good. Glad to be here. It looks like it's going to be a good discussion today.
0: Well, do you care to introduce our guests plural? Because we have two, we have three of them today.
1: I'm going to let you do the introductions of guests and topic. This was your your baby, your idea.
0: You mean, my slapdash together musing that I had in the morning. <laughs> so about a week ago, I thought I've actually wanted to do this for a while, but I completely forgot about it. I thought with Valentine's Day coming up, I really want to do like a panel of autistic people who are in like romantic relationships, because there's a lot of misconceptions and just lack of understanding about autistic people and like dating and marriage and family and things like that. And we just did an episode, even though I'm pretty sure that that will air after this one, about some misconceptions about autism, and that was one of them. So I invited on a couple people. They've all been on the podcast before, who are all in some sort of romantic relationship, to talk about their experience. So would you guys want to introduce yourselves? I would say like counterclockwise or clockwise, but I'm not sure how your screen looks versus mine. So (laughs) I'll just like call you guys out, and then. And then you could just introduce yourself. So, uh, Erica, you want to start us off?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm Erica McCorkle. I am an author of fantasy novels. Um, Currently, just one is out right now, but I'm working on another one, and another also one will be coming out soon. And I am autistic, and I am in a relationship with a human man. So (laughs) that's my um, contribution here. I'm also asexual and actually aromantic, but. It is what it is. We'll talk about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons one of the many reasons I wanted you on is to give different perspectives. Um Brandy, you want to go?
3: Yeah. Um I'm Brandy Thompson. Uh, I'm a photographer and a you know, small business owner, and parent, and I've been married for 15 and a half years. Almost 15 and a half years. So, uh yeah, a, a little bit of experience there. Um and yeah, I'm I don't have anything creative to say, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Erica's
0: one of the best that like, of people who do introductions, we have a couple people who are like top notch. Erica, I don't know how you do it. You're just good <laughs> at just marketing yourself.
2: I don't know how I do it either, Ben, because I did not practice that at all.
0: <laughs> and we, met, we, went, we, we went digging deep, deep, deep into the ghettos of Corona to find this dude. You've heard him on the podcast before. He hasn't been on in a while. He actually like climbed into Giraffe's butt and hadn't been seen for several months. But Ryan, Ryan Navarro is back.
4: <laughs> hey, everyone. Yes, he <laughs> mentioned I'm Ryan. Uh, I'm an aspiring zookeeper. I was, I was a zookeeper for a little while. It's a hard job. It's nine, it's nine hours a day, five days a week. So that's why I haven't been on. And I've been in a relationship now for almost 11 years.
0: What's with Giraffe? Listen, we don't judge here. We want all different types of perspectives here. On a, ser- on a serious note, um, yeah, you've been really busy. That's why we haven't had, that's why we haven't just, we just couldn't link up the record. But yeah, Ryan's back. And
1: I guess y'all know me and Stacy already. I'm Tony Kearns. I am really glad that you did pick this topic. Um, I, I, you guys know that I work with families and I work with families all over the world. And it's amazing how because of some Um, many cultural expectations, a lot of parents are actually more worried about their children not getting married one day over everything else. Like, like that is like the key because culturally it's what everybody has to do, right? You get married, you have babies, you take in the elder. So it is, um, it's always um, really nice to see when I, when I share stories of autistic folks who are married and have children. And I'm glad that you all are gonna talk about this because parents don't know that. They really get a diagnosis and think like their kid's never gonna be able to get married. But I also say not everybody who is not autistic gets married and finds love. So it's not like just because you're autistic, you deserve to be more married than anybody else. Everybody, you know, goes through life and sometimes relationships work and sometimes they don't. But I'm appreciative that you all are sharing your experiences because I think it will help a lot of families. It really will. All right, that's my two cents, three cents. So, You
0: wanna start us off with questions or should I? You go. Okay, so what, to the question that, I wanna get right to brass tacks. I barely pronounce that word, Jesus. Um, I really wanna know from all of you, are there any sort of communication issues in terms of, I don't know, body language, uh, talking to each other, arguments, any of that. Some, any sort of communication issues that you have With your significant other that tend to pop up a lot? And if so, what are some of those issues and how do you resolve them? I guess I'll just start with Erica again.
2: Um, There were at first, but if anything, it was him. Like he learned how to communicate with me. And I'm very grateful that he managed to do that because I don't think I could have like ever found the same wavelength to speak to him so it's all on him he was the one who kind of learned my language and now we pretty much have our own language like we will say things that would make no sense whatsoever if anyone else said it or heard us um, but like we get it um, we we kind of just vibe we know what he, we know what we want um, I kind of know how he's feeling on any given day he knows how I'm feeling It it just kind of worked out
0: you really saved that. Because you started with. At first, it was him. I'm like, oh boy, she's about to just throw this poor dude under the bus. But you really turned <laughs> that around. So,
2: no, he's wonderful. He figured me out better than I could have figured him out. So, yeah.
0: Uh, Brandy, what you got?
2: So both of us are
3: kind of late diagnosed, right? Um, and you know, it's a journey, and we've been we've been together for like 18 years. I mean, it'll be, I think it'll be 19 in July. So um, probably our biggest struggle is that I tend to be, you know, blunt. <laughs> I like, I, I just like, I'm just like, I just say what's on my mind, right? And now, I mean, this is something I've been trying for years, trying to um, adjust my communication to meet his. And because he um, really uh, struggles with RSD, uh pretty strongly rejection sensitive dysphoria. So um he cares a lot about tone and stuff like that. That I'm not so good at. So um that's probably our biggest struggle is that, you know, he's seeing that that I might be upset with him when in fact I'm just feeling something about something else and I'm not like my tone is my tone. That's just what I sound like. So that's probably been our you know obviously over the years we've continued to learn and we're always still on a journey you know because that's just what life is but yeah I would say our biggest struggle is my tone being (laughs) just my tone and I'm I can't fake it like I can't pretend I'm happy if I'm not happy and so but even if it's not to do with him but he might um hear it as I'm upset with him. You know what I'm saying? Like because of the RSD element, which you know isn't his fault. So that's probably like our biggest struggle. Um, but you know, like I said, work in progress and always trying to learn how to better understand and communicate with one another.
0: And is he on the spectrum as well or um you mentioned you... late diagnosed, so like ADHD. He's ADHD, maybe? ADHD.
3: He's ADHD yes. Um Everything else, who knows? You know. Yeah. Everything's just kind of like, where's the line? So, but.
0: <laughs> and yeah. e- Erica, I forgot to mention um, your boyfriend. He's neurotypical, right?
2: Yes. Well, at least I assume so. We, he's not been diagnosed as anything, but I also don't suspect that he is autistic. Mm. He's 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 pretty normal, in my opinion.
0: Okay, Ryan, you have plenty of time to formulate the best response
4: because you went last. So. Ha <laughs> ha, Thanks. No pressure then. Uh, I mean, I did have some. We did have communication issues in the beginning because you know we're two people, different people trying to get to know each other, with completely different backgrounds. Now I'd say our real issue that pops up is anything text related. So I'm not good at reading tone or what message someone's trying to convey through words alone. I just end up getting it confused or I don't really know. And that's the hard part. I usually end up having to clarify or I misinterpret what my girlfriend's trying to say. We're getting be- I'm getting better at that, but it's still a, a work in progress.
0: And how long have you all been together now? Like ten years or something?
2: May Maybe eleven years. Jesus.
0: And Brandy Orienta, oh, Erica, how long have you been with your boyfriend?
2: Uh, we never like officially started dating at any certain point, so it's hard to tell. We've just been together. <laughs> um I've been living with him for 13 years now, though. So even maybe a little before then we started dating. I don't know.
1: Erica, that's how I ended up in my first marriage. We just hung out and ended up with two kids and a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> no hope for the future there. I'm sorry. I know. I know. I, I wanted to share a story uh, that Brandy's uh, uh Insight sort of triggered. I went to I this was the I think World Autism uh conference. Anyway, I presented at this conference and there were other presenters, and one of the presentations was a couple. It is a um a husband that is non-autistic and he's married to an autistic woman, and they do these presentations talking about relationships, right? And marriage. So one of the stories that they tell, because I have a great sense of humor, of course, is she would, almost like Sheldon, for lack of a better way to explain it, Sheldon from the Big Bang, she would just come up to him and say, hey, let's go have sex. And he was like, I I need a little warming up. And so it was this weird thing of most of the time, guys don't need warming up, right? It was like, this is not working for me, where you just decide. Bluntly, it's time to have sex, right? So, well, we we, we talked really about funny. scripts
0: in a previous episode, and regular people <laughs> use scripts too. That's not on the script for most dudes. That doesn't usually happen. So, it's like, <laughs> oh, oh crap, I I I I don't have one for this. So,
1: it was really funny, and so they had to work that out. So, they talked about how they worked it out, and they came up with a balance, right? Like she would give him a little bit of it. Usually, the woman's asking for the cuddling, right? Like, oh, I just need to be romance, and he's like, I. Can't do that. (laughs) So, um, but it was good. It was very insightful. And so that's why I'm kind of glad that we're talking about this because I do think for those who are listening, especially parents who have teens or young adults, these are some of the things you can help your kiddos navigate, right? Have them listen to this podcast replay so that they can understand, um, first of all, that uh, relationships are different, but also they're not the only one having that experience, right? Each of you are sharing your experiences and and everybody can, somebody can connect with uh, one or two of them. Uh, anyway, that's my story.
0: <laughs> and I have a question for Brandy. So you mentioned your, your husband with RDS. So I just learned what RDS was about a week ago. In fact, it's going to be interesting. This is going to come up for the last podcast we recorded, Stacey, where I say, I don't know what RDS is. And we sort of like postulate. So there's going to be a little retconning going on here. But Brandy, could you describe what RDS is exactly? Yeah,
3: uh, yeah, rejection sensitive dysphoria. So the easiest way to see it is, uh, or understand it, is to like you're kind of like you're you're viewing things with the the conception that like someone, like that you're wrong, right? Like you're so you're you're seeing yourself as rejected even when you're not actually being rejected. Your brain says, "Oh, this person's mad at me." this person thinks I'm inferior, this person like it's, you know, again, it's like, and, and I think it displays for a different for everybody. Like, I think I've realized myself, I I have it too. And I think it's pretty common for both autistic and ADHD people, but um, his manifests kind of in a different way. And so like things like tone are really important to him. Like if you, if you sound like, if you're having, like it's totally unrelated to him, if I'm like, er, you know, someone on the mm-hmm. internet made me angry, you know? And he's like, are you mad at me? You know, I'm like, no, I'm not mad at you. This is just my feelings, you know? But so like his brain says, you know, it's just, for I think so many of us um, neurodivergent folks, especially um, if we went a long period being undiagnosed, um, we've kind of built these mechanisms where, or we've, mm, sorry, that's not the right term at all, I apologize we've kind of experienced this trauma, which intensifies that, like you're, you've been rejected or you felt rejected by society because you didn't fit in, but you didn't understand why you didn't fit in. And so I think that only makes the RSD element worse because your brain starts to become at that baseline of like, people are mad at me and I'm not doing this right. Even though nobody's mad at you or if they are mad or if they're irritated, it's more minor than you might think it is. Hopefully any of that made sense.
0: (laughs) No, I think that made perfect sense. And the reason I'm curious about that is I've always had an issue with, like, rejection. Not quite that. I just have, like, a crippling fear of it. Which you think I wouldn't because I've been rejected in all sorts of different situations so much. But, like, I've been rejected in some really, like, awful ways and awful situations to the point where it's like... Like, when I send an email to invite somebody on the podcast that hasn't been on before, I, I told Stacey this. It, it takes a lot of spoons because I got to spend, like, An hour formulating it because I'm afraid because I've been yelled at by professors for not formulating a proper enough email and it's kind of embarrassing. So I'm afraid if I don't send it well enough, not only will I get yelled at, but I'll cost the podcast a good, a potential good interview through my inability to articulate in the perfect way possible. So I I definitely get that, and of course, like talking to like women and stuff like that, I've had some. Both me and Ryan have had some interesting rejections. At least Ryan's, like yours are cool. Me me and Ryan, we for those of you tuning in for the first time, we basically grew up together. We met in high school and we went to college together. You've had some interesting ones, but yeah, I've had some like harsh rejection. I've had people to obviously tell me I'm ugly. I've had people explain I'm undateable. Um, I had one girl say she only got me because I was autistic, that sucked. So I feel like, and the, the reason I brought this up is I feel like for some autistic people, I've talked to some of my friends and some people in the autism community. There's like this fear of putting yourself out there or fear of opening up in relationships due to the fact that you've been rejected in, in, in a series of really messed up ways. So now you kind of internalize it. You guys get what I mean?
3: Well, absolutely. Um, because I actually, I deal with that, like not so much, you know, with my spouse but with non-romantic relationships. Yeah, like, me I'm, too.
0: I got where... it for all of it. I got the whole yeah, thing. Yeah.
3: Like, it's, it's funny that you, you know, you kind of mentioned that, I mean, because I've been kind of struggling with that lately with some, you know, new interpersonal relationships, which is always a challenge. Yeah. And like, based on previous experiences with people in a similar role at different places, I'm like nervous, right? Like, I'm like, like redrafting the email like three times. So anyway, I get it. I I hear what you're saying. Even on the non-romantic side, I think it can apply towards any relationship of any sort where you're like, you're kind of like walking on eggshells because you're afraid you're going to get rejected and and misunderstood.
0: Exactly. I saw a meme, and wasn't really a meme. It was like a it was a post on Facebook from I forget who one of the accounts I follow, and it says, "Not to." It was railing against some neurotypical speech, and the example it gave is, "You can come if you want." and the autistic person preferred the more direct, it was something along the lines of, I'd like you to come right, and to whatever event. And immediately my mind went to, the reason people used the first one is because say, if you can come if you want, you can't be rejected that way. If you say, I'd like you to come, you're opening yourself up to be rejected. I use language like that. Like, I don't like it if I invite, like, I'm like, yo, you want to go hang out? And I get rejected? Like, I I still get a little nervous about that. And I, I, I kind of hate admitting that, because I'm definitely of the sort of like suck it up, be macho sort of camp. That's just sort of how I am. So I hate having to admit like stuff like that, but I'm definitely like, I definitely get that. But to change subjects a little bit, there's two things I'm, well, first Stacey, Stacey, I, I want to make sure I'm not boxing out. Do you have any questions before I veer this podcast off a cliff?
1: I, I do kind of have a question in relation to the, Uh, rejection sensitivity uh, dysphoria only from the other perspective in terms of this is new information for me uh, a few months ago and um, I will admit the first time it was told to me I thought oh my gosh we've we got something else we got to, like oh my it's gosh an another to,
0: another label another another, another, another syndrome well, it yeah it was
1: it was really i was frustrated because i thought oh my gosh here's another reason why my coworkers can't do their freaking job right because now they have this right so we're <laughs> in a situation where we have three people on the team who are adhd And they can't take feedback. And I'm like, so they're allowed to just keep making mistakes at work because they can't take feedback because they have ADHD and rejection sensitivity dysphoria. But the rest of us have to like pick up the slack. Like I need to figure out what's the balance. Like if you know you have this, like what are you going to do to manage it? Like we all have things and we have to go to work and figure out how to be a team player. So for me, I'm just like, oh my gosh, you're 40 years old. What the hell, right? Um... And and I, it's not that I don't understand it. I get it. Like, I get it. It's like, so what are you going to do? Because you are the workplace. A relationship is different. You can navigate your relationship. But when it comes to the workplace, as you were saying, other relationships, you know, how much it's, it almost feels like it just to be honest, it feels like people are just getting off the hook of getting feedback, right? And I'm come from, I'm old school. I come from you aren't doing well on your job, you get feedback from your boss and you fix it, right? Like that's how we all get stuff done at work. It's different now, but now we have to have trainings on how to have difficult conversations. Um, I like the straightforward approach. So any insight into, is that something you bring up? Well, some of you have been in relationships for a long time or how does that work in, in that relationship dynamic or who's responsible for navigating it so that no one feels like they're having to do something so drastically different. I, you know, I'm not against supporting people's needs. That's not what I'm talking about. Just, does that make sense? Or did I just go on a vent?
0: I think we. it, it does make sense. A lot of people use these newer terms, which are legit things as excuses to either not do their job or mm. if they're being mean to someone and, they're, and that person called it out or established boundaries, they'll say, oh, I have... X, Y, and Z, that's why I'm violating your boundaries, or that's why I'm being mean, or that's why I'm not doing my job. As And I personally don't like that. And yes, sometimes it can be a little murky, but I think I think we all understand that's what you're talking about.
1: One of the team members actually said that she was offended because we didn't put emojis on our messages. So she wanted to tell everyone to put emojis so she felt not rejected. And I thought, I'm just not messaging her.
0: They used to have, a, I, I would just put the middle finger emoji. That's an emoji. Every phone has an <laughs> at least the a if They got that middle finger emoji. that's Exactly what they I don't. Can I don't me.
1: message her anymore. I thought that was just a little over the top. I was like, really? Like now we have to put emojis so you feel good about your message that it's not offensive? Help me understand, <laughs> <laughs> Brandy. What you got? What you got, Brandy?
3: Monopolize. If if Ryan or Erica have, I have <laughs> thoughts. But if Ryan or Erica would like to go first, please do. I don't want to monopolize. <laughs>
2: I mean I well I'll say my thoughts. I don't have this rejection dysphoria. So like I I can't really comment. Yeah, you're personally. fearless. Yeah, like I'm fine. Like well my stance is I've rejected the world so I don't give a fuck if it rejects me back. Um and that's for these demands of people you know making emojis like I don't know that's a little silly to me uh, like I uh, I'm an adult I'm yeah I, it's uh, hard yeah. for me to
1: receive the need for support when you want something mandated like that mm-hmm.
3: it, it's interesting because like Erica part of me has kind of just been like F- the world I think the the hardest part where I can't say F- the world is stuff involving my children mm-hmm. because you don't want to burn bridges with people when you're when your child's involved in something. Say activity etc as much as I would like to be like you because that's what i what how I feel I can't for their sake which mm-hmm. sucks you know so then that becomes the I can't just leave the situation so then I'm scared like I'm scared they're gonna misunderstand me because it's happened so often where people are like oh you're yelling or you're angry et etc and I'm like but I wasn't you know and i but I can't just walk away I would if it was mm-hmm. for me but I can't when it's involving my children so that's hard but I've run into as far as the example you gave Stacy, I agree that the way they communicated that need was inappropriate because you you kind of, and I think this to myself all the time, and I'm actually going through some stuff with my daughter who's 12, you know, tween years. Um, And where is it, where do we have the line of accommodations versus someone, some people, and I don't think this is a lot of people, and I think people don't mean to do this sometimes of weaponizing their disability. You know what I mean? Like which is not appropriate. And and that's something I really try with my children saying, well, yes, you deserve accommodations, but it's still up to you to try your hardest, like, and have communication with people and be like, so if someone said versus saying, oh, well, I need emojis in every message, which, you know, is a little silly. She could say, you know, I'm having a hard time because I feel like people's tone is negative. So, you know, how can we communicate? Because I'm struggling with this. So instead of placing a demand, I think it's better to say I'm having a hard time with this. What's a solution that we can work on together? You know. But again, that's I think part of the element with people who struggle with really serious RSD is they get very like they get very um, like reactive, you know. And so they they get demanding, they get reactive because they're putting up that like protection of being angry. And demanding. And and again, that's not a justification, but that's where we were like, okay, how can we, I I hear that you have a need that's unfulfilled, but how can we have a open, honest conversation about this without either side feeling like unfair demands are being put on them?
1: That is um, great advice. And for those listening, that's really good, especially for teens and young adults going into relationships. If you know that that's how you Feel like if you know that you have that rejection sensitivity, communicate it right. Like say, I'm not upset with you. I just want to let you know that I perceive things from the from the beginning. Uh, that's my old people advice. The sooner you talk about stuff in the open, the easier it is to weed out people who are not going to be with you. Instead of waiting till you're in it for a long haul and then you're stuck.
0: Well, I'm, I'm actually glad you kept it on this topic because I do have one more question for Ryan in, in particular. So. One, you're the only dude on this panel, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> that was not intentional, by the way. That was just how how things shook out. Our friend Henry, was on the podcast, was supposed to be on, but his internet decided to crap out like five minutes before we were supposed to start. So um, Ryan's the only dude. In society, well, at least in like Western society and most societies, uh, men or people who are perceived as male, at, at, at least, are expected to sort of take the initiative in social situations, which is something that can be difficult for autistic people in general. So you, how did you navigate having to, because you asked your girl out the first time, you're the one initiated sort of everything at the beginning. How did you navigate that?
4: I did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at times it felt like I was in a rowboat against a hurricane, but yeah. When that situation, all you can do is just move forward.
0: So what are some of the strategies you use? Like, how did you deal with the nerves? And because I know you were nervous because you mentioned to me at the time that you were really nervous. How did you deal with some of the nerves at like the beginning? Like having to ask her out and ask her to be your girlfriend, things like that.
4: Well, at a certain point, I told myself I'm going to hate myself a lot more if I don't do it. At least if I try and fail, I'm in the same place. If I fail, I'm just even more miserable. So that helps. It's just like trying to, trying to motivate yourself. Like, just do it already.
0: Um, did it take you a little bit? Like, did it take you, did you have to take like several days to like get yourself like pumped up mentally? Like, to ask her out for the first time?
4: No, it was kind of a spur of the moment thing. I, I, that probably helped. I didn't have oh, yeah, to. Oh, that, yeah, that
0: definitely helps you. Just like, screw it. You don't give yourself time to think about it. You just do it.
4: Yeah, okay. You got to move
0: before your brain realizes what you've done. Like you like you said, you do something before you have a chance to realize how bad of an idea it is and you just sort of roll with it. Which sort of works against the whole script thing because the downside of that is you don't really have a script because you weren't planning to do it. But sometimes you have a script and you'll look over it and go, Okay, this is a bad this is not gonna work. This is a bad thing, you start overthinking stuff. So I think that's great. And another I'm rewrite the
4: script every now and then. Exactly. <laughs> That's what makes life interesting. Not staying to the same game plan.
0: Exactly. So you, you never know what's going to happen. And a question I have specifically for brandy You mentioned your kids. You're the only person on the podcast with kids. Once again, that wasn't intentional. Some some, some people couldn't make it. What are some of the challenges you've had? As and we actually just this first pot or when we had you last year, but we have a lot of new viewers. What are some of the challenges you had as a parent, as an autistic parent, raising uh, ND children?
3: Um, I mean, probably kind of what I alluded to and especially, um, challenging right now with my daughter being a tween, (laughs) she just turned 12, um, and she, um, it's challenging for multiple reasons. A, she also has the RSD issue. So she'll get, and so, so my son, you know, he's autistic and and he's not speaking, but he and I we're, were very alike like we are avoiders, right? Like if you want to argue and I'm like getting overwhelmed, I'm just like, nope, nope, I'm leaving. Goodbye. I'm out of here. And he's the same way. He just leaves, right? Like, so we just go and we cool down and we're just like, leave us alone. Whereas like my daughter is very like, she spirals, like you, she starts getting upset. And so it just keeps going and, you know, like she just gets more and more intense. And then, you know, again, (laughs) we come into the tone issues where she's like, you're being rude to me. And I'm like, baby, I'm just asking you to do something, you know, like, can you please pick up your clothes or like, you know, whatever. And she's like, you sound mad at me. And I'm like, I'm not mad. (laughs) It's kind of a similar thing where I'm trying to communicate with her. And, um, I think the teen years are fraught and I, um, have a lot of challenges in my teen years and I'm really trying to be the mother I wish I had. Um, but I, you know, it is challenging and I think it's, important that we admit challenges, that we can say that this is challenging while remaining neutral about it and being like, we're not vilifying anybody. Nobody's necessarily wrong in this situation, but it's still a challenge that we have to learn and adjust our communication of. And of course, I'm the adult here, so it's it's my job to be the one that remains calm. Not that, not that I always do that, <laughs> let's be honest, but, you know, just being humble, being willing to learn, being you know, I think that applies to all relationships, including children. And they, you know, I think I've talked about this before, which is like when you view your children through a lens of being just humans, like and not like do as I say. <laughs> um, it, that's the thing. Like you're, you still have to learn how they communicate, etc. And you know, my son has his own challenges, but really for the most part, he and I, other than you know one challenge, which you know I tweeted about recently, but um, he and I are very just kind of copacetic. I think because our, our reactions and personalities are very alike in so many ways. So I, I struggle more communicating with my daughter, but I'm trying to remain humble and, you know, and just admit when I make mistakes and learn to do better the next day. So.
1: And Brandy, I will say that most moms do have trouble communicating with their daughters when they hit teens and boys and moms just win together um so that is pretty pretty common dynamic and,
0: and I just want to mention that Brandy is and if you follow her on Twitter and I'll have people's social medias and descriptions mm-hmm. she is such an amazing mom you are mm-hmm. such a good mom because you you work hard to make sure you're meeting your kids needs you mm-hmm. doubt yourself quite quite openly because you want to be better so you're always you're always saying, Am I doing enough? You're always feeling bad for being harsh on the kids. You want you're always trying to be a better parent. You don't just assume you know everything. You assume their autonomy. And I just think that you're a great example for like mothers of neurodivergent children, which is a lot of our audience. So I just want to mention that. Um, Stacey, I didn't mean to cut you off. Is there something you were saying?
1: Well, I I you know, in terms of parenting um, being an autistic person and, and parenting, uh, autistic kiddos, I have, I'd love to know any advice that each of you would have. I have several moms, um, specifically a couple of dads, but most of my moms are what I call sort of out spectrum from that show called out where that couple had like 1500 daughters, five or six daughters. So I have moms who, unbeknownst to them, married an autistic man, and um, one, two, or three, all of their children are um, autistic as well. And mom is the lone non-autistic, and no one wants to talk to her. And most of them knew, of course, their husbands were introverts, thought their children were going to be the relationship dynamic, and now they're literally just lonely in their house. Um, any, <laughs> and navigating everyone's sensory needs at the same time. <laughs> um, and typically the dads don't have a lot of patience uh, because they don't know that they're autistic either, or they're getting evaluated. So any advice for that kind of relationship dynamic where, um you're the only person who's not autistic in the room, um, in a family.
2: I, I've never been in that position, so I, yeah, me either, that's why you hear from me. Oh, um, I'm
4: usually the opposite, I'm usually the only autistic person in my, in my family. (laughs) I got nothing. It's really interesting
1: because it, it's a scenario that is very common, um, with my clients, and it's like, do I make my kids engage with me? But they seem to be happy if they're not, because typically the kids are very creative and and you know creating things and making things, and so uh, they're not really wanting to do a lot of social engaging um, uh, with with the parents. So, um, a special interest—that's the first thing that comes
0: to my mind. Uh, Find most autistic people have some sort of special interest. Most autistic children do. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say off the top of my head, try try to bond over special whatever their special interest is. That that usually works. Um But the question you're asking is basically you're asking a bunch of autistic people how the hell how what experience do we have being non-autistic people in a room full of autistic people? This is some inception type. Shit. So, uh,
3: <laughs>
0: so we might not be the best people to ask. That is
1: That is a very good point, a very good point. So I guess I will clarify it and say, should the moms create opportunities for their children to communicate to them and engage with them? Or should they just let them be in their creative mode? That is the question I will ask. Grandy? Yeah,
3: so, I mean... I can, I can give you even from an autistic, autistic viewpoint, but I can kind of give you an example, like from me and my son, right? Um, so like, I'm like real big into Christmas for a lot of reasons, but I'm not, I won't bore you with all that, but like, you know, um, my son being the way he is with the mind body disconnect. And, you know, so when he was little, he didn't, you know, manifest outwardly all the, the joy you expect from Christmas, etc. cetera. And that's, you know, again. Obviously, I've already learned a lot since then and about everything, but I think it comes down to for people, I mean, yes, I do think that mothers should look at what their children are interested in and offer those opportunities. But I also think it's shifting your perspective, you know, um, because- you know i see a lot you see a lot of parents and i always you know who are like oh my kid isn't social my kid you know they just want to stay alone i mean that was me right like i was just literally being with a pile of books in my room before you know pre internet so um and i say your child like is your child happy or unhappy alone that's the first question you you ask your child like how do you feel is there something you want there is there something that you're dreaming of or thinking of or etc like just ask them questions. So I think, I think, yes, engaging them, but the engaging them in a way of asking them what they want and seeing what their needs and desires are. Because I totally get, as a mother, you want your to feel loved by your children. (laughs) Like you want, like, I get that, you know, totally. I mean, uh, from my perspective, it's hard because I actually get overstimulated. So I'm not like, I'm like, okay, I need some time. (laughs) But, um, no, I think it's really about finding and asking your child, like, what, what is it they feel they want or need and what would make them happy? And then say, look at, you know, yourself and say, okay, this is what we could do together and offer it. But also again, you know, change your perspective, respect their needs. If they say no, say, okay, well maybe, you know, if you think of something else we could do, let me know. I want to hear what your ideas are, et cetera. It's just, again, I think it just comes down to treating your child, like another human being where you're like, who are you? What do you want? What do you need? Let's come together on it.
2: That's good. I do have something to say um so the whole parenting thing reminds me a lot of my grandmother and now she was the one who raised me so when i say my grandma i really mean my primary female caretaker here um and she was wonderful she was um probably not autistic i don't know it's not like but she didn't know what autism was so raising me she just raised me as just this weird person like she thought i was just a weird person probably um but what i admire is that like she gave me space and that's probably the best thing i would suggest to a non-autistic parent is to not pester the child into doing things that they aren't interested in doing mm-hmm. Um my grandma never forced me to do anything so she never forced me to eat uh foods. i was you know very picky um you know textures i i'm still big into the food texture like if the texture is bad i can't i can't even put the food in my mouth there are some foods i can't even look at and my grandma would never force me to eat anything that i didn't want to eat um she'd never force me to like touch people i didn't want to touch or be around people i didn't want to be around and i think that was the best thing she did for me is just Mm kind of let me do what i felt was right for myself
1: Mm -hmm which is exactly what we want our parents to do. And I, you know, I think COVID lockdown perpetuated it, you know, you're home for two years with just your family unit that drove all of us crazy. But certainly if no one is talking to you for two years, <laughs> it, just, yeah. it, it was kind of tough. It was kind of tough. It's, it's hard. Cause I, you know, I just, I, I don't know what to say. I'm like, I'm so sorry. Everybody's just quiet and creating and, um, a lot of it's also cultural. So enough of that. Go ahead, Torrin.
0: Um, so I have a couple questions for two different people. So the first thing I want to ask Ryan is, so you're, I think you're the only person on this panel who doesn't live with their significant other, right? Because Erica, you mentioned you live with your boyfriend and Brandy, you, you live with your husband. So, and you've never, you've never lived with your girlfriend in part because y'all live in New York City where it costs three grand a month to get a cardboard box in a subway station.
4: Three
0: grand, that's a deal. I know, right? It's a deal. Well, with three grand, if you have a roommate, you get the, home, the homeless crack addict, that's a roommate. You get, you get him as a roommate, it's three grand. You, it's six grand, you both pay half. Anyway, what are some of the challenges? Because not only do you, do you live in separate locations, New York City is huge. You live on the other ends of the city. And for those of you who don't know, New York City basically has its own suburbs. It is t- it is like 15, 20 miles. You could have two locations 20 miles apart and be in the same city. So, and you, you live on opposite ends of the city. You come from two different worlds. You come from sort of a uh, middle-class background. She comes from more of a working-class uh, urban environment. What are some of the challenges you've had with, like, linking up your schedules and dealing with the subway system and some of the sensory issues? What, what are some of the challenges that have arisen from living kind of far from each other and not having, like, a car to be able to, to, to drive there?
4: Ooh, there's a couple. Uh, finding the time to have our schedules aligned so we can meet up—that's the big one. Because for a while, she started her new job, I was on my old job, and we only had Fridays where we could meet up. So we had to really maximize our time together. That was the only thing we—the only day we had. And yeah, dealing with the subway system—that is a, it's a crapshoot. You have a perfect day, or the fourth train can suddenly decide it's not running to go going to any stop you need because they're doing construction in the middle of the day for some reason on a weekday
0: for those that don't live in the city most people live in the city don't have cars because it's pretty much impossible to drive so our main mode of transportation is the subway system which as an aside is one of the reasons covid was so bad in new york city is everyone's packed in and the subway system is old and and decrepit and it's sensory hell because of the lights and the sounds and the people and also like tends to have delays and changes in routes. So it won't even run the route it's supposed to. It will just go on a completely different route and take you to a completely different part of the city. So there's a lot of having to reorganize your plans, like be a human GPS, which can be hard for a lot of autistic people. When you, when you say, okay, I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go from point A to point B, it's gonna take this amount of time. We'll know it's gonna actually take 30% more time. And point B is now point F. So you're going to figure out how to get now from point F back to point B. Because screw you.
4: There's different challenges. There's, okay, this one train has a signal problem. I can bounce to the other one. Or someone jumps onto the tracks at Times Square and shuts down half the trains in Manhattan.
0: It's always Times Square, too. They jump on the tracks of Times Square.
4: You, you you can't go anywhere sometimes. Just half the train lines are shut down. It's like, do I want to spend $50 to go inbox on an Uber? Or
1: <laughs> what do I want to do? Ryan, do you and your girl mostly meet somewhere to hang out? Or do you just... Like, do you go on dates out, or do you just like to hang out at home?
4: Sometimes we plan dates. Sometimes we do it spontaneously. Like, the other week, we just decided to go to a diner, and then while we were at the diner, we are like, oh, let's check out this art museum. They have a starry night from Van Gogh there. Sometimes we plan it out. If it's bad weather, we just stay home and watch Dragon watch Dragon Ball Z. That's our big thing, though. Like, if it's raining really cold, forget it. We're not going outside unless we have to.
0: Was she always in the DBC?
4: She was in before me. She was the OG. I'm the late cover.
0: Oh, wow. I had, I had an ex that was, in, that was in the Dragon Ball City. That was awesome. Um, and for for either Brandy or Erica, either of you have, obviously, you love your significant other, but has there been issues with, like, because both of you work. So, has there been issues with making time for each other and scheduling, things like that?
2: Um, I only work three days a week, and I have a weekend off. Um, And he does, too, since he's just a school teacher. So our schedules actually align quite nicely. Um, If anything, it's the fact that I'm nocturnal and he's, you know, on a normal schedule. Um, That kind of sometimes causes problems. But we have enough awake time together that it hasn't really been a problem for us.
3: Um, For for us, it's probably more the challenge is, well, you know, for quite a while, he's worked a lot of hours. I mean, he works from home, but he'll be in his, shut in his office, like working endless number of hours. And then I'm just so tired and overstimulated by the end of the day when he comes out of his office. And I'm just like, I don't want anyone to talk to me anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I've already been homeschooling the kids, dealing with clients, like all of, you know, trying to do all this stuff. So by the time it's evening, I'm just like, I'm dead now. I don't want to talk to anybody. So, you know, that's the challenge, even though we're in the house, just like all my energy goes to the kids and working and everything like that. And so, you know, and he spends a lot of energy on work because he just works a lot of hours. And so by the time, you know, we're done, we're all, and he gets overstimulated too because he's introverted for sure. And like, he has to be on the phone. And so we're both just like, you know, so that's, we're just tired. That's our, that's our challenge.
0: (laughs) And Brandy. So recently I was listening to a uh, podcast uh, about like an autism parenting podcast because I try to listen to people who do similar podcasts to us. And this was definitely more of a um, Martyr Parent Podcast. In fact, that's the joke. I call it the Martyr Parent Podcast. Stacy knows what I'm talking about. And they had a guest on, one of their guests. Some of their guests were great, but one of their guests, basically, the guest and the host spent 35 minutes basically complaining about how their uh, autistic children effectively ruined their marriage and how the statistics say, that like marriages tend to end because of disabled kids and really couching it in ways that it's the kid entirely the kid's fault that their marriage had gone down to shitter. So yeah. wh- what sort of effect, if any, positive and negative has having two disabled kids had on your marriage?
3: Um, you know, I I honestly, to me, I feel like in ways it's been more positive. You know, I, I would say- I
0: love to hear that, by the way. <laughs>
3: Um, I would say that you know obviously he and I are different people, you know are even though we're both you know neurodivergent, we have different needs and different you know communication and all that, but like, I feel like you know learning about the kids' needs and like supporting the kids I think has actually helped us both in ways like it like i don't know i I feel like just the fact that we both see them as humans that are valuable and and they're not burdens. They're not, you know, like I think if you're blaming your kids for the downfall of your marriage, I just think you need a lot of self-perceptive, like change your view because like it I mean it's just it's a real I don't know. I mean honestly, I do not feel like it's other I mean the only negative is is just that I'm tired, but that's not the kids' fault. And you would say that about a neurotypical children too, because they just their children. support. So like, no, I, I absolutely don't feel like their needs have been anything negative to our relationship at all. Like not, I mean, not in the least, I think we, we both celebrate them. And and again, we're both humans and, and not perfect. And we all have room to grow, but no, I mean, I don't, I think and he, you know, if I went and asked him that right now, he would say the same thing. Like, I don't think it's been any negative impact on us with the kids. Like if anything, it's been a positive chance to just grow and be better people and uh, be invested in the joy of our children.
0: See, see, I told you she was a a great mother. Um, I I asked that in part, because I I follow you on Twitter, so I knew what you were going to say. That was definitely a, admittedly a bit, I wouldn't say cynical, but for my own benefit, because having to listen to this podcast really put me in a bad mental headspace. I even re- record like a bonus episode that came out a few weeks ago, about a week ago, about how that made me feel. My own parents got divorced pretty early. My dad constantly blamed me for it from the time I was a kid to the time I was an adult. He never let me forget that I basically ruined his marriage. So that was definitely, I knew what you were going to say because I needed to hear it, but I think probably a lot of autistic people and autistic parents probably could have
1: used that too. So thank you. The reality is that it's not the child that causes the breakup of marriage. It's the diagnosis. I mean, I can tell you dads that literally have just packed their bags and left after they get a diagnosis. They're like, nope. Why is it always dads too? Some moms do, do leave, but it's a lot of dads. A lot of times it's, a lot of times it is culturally based. I keep saying one day I'm going to write a book because there are so many cultural demands for some people that there's so much shame around not having something the way it's supposed to be in the cookie cutter box that it's like your family like scorns you. It's really bad in some some cultures. Um, I mean, it's tough, it's like really tough. So people just check out, it's, yeah. And then there's other theories, you know, like my parents in Africa, like the ancestors must be angry with your family. So leave, because that's what they've been taught is the ancestors are angry, right? Um, Until they learn something different. Uh, that's what they think. So that's why we're doing this podcast. So people can learn something different and uh shift their narrative. Um, but it's not the child, it's the diagnosis.
3: Yeah, it's it's the fear mongering in society. It's it's the fear mongering where someone is ignorant and, and they're like they're scared mm-hmm. because the it's been so hyped up as a negative in mm-hmm. society instead mm-hmm. of saying, Okay, this is just what it is, how do mm-hmm. we accommodate? Like that's that, but you're right no like what you're saying is it's not it's not the child but people keep wanting to blame the child instead of facing their yeah. own fear and overcoming you know the ignorance that they've been brainwashed into believing yeah
0: yep i have a couple more questions the first thing i want to ask for erica is and we talked a little bit about this when you were on the first time is as someone who's asexual what are some of the dynamics in because when people think asexually they think Oh, they—they don't want to be in a relationship. They don't want to find love. It's fake. I've heard that one a lot. Um, what are some? Of the, how are some of the dynamics different, or are they different with your boyfriend versus like a regular sexual couple? The lack of a better word.
2: Yeah, it is very different. Um, I'm not interested in sex at all whatsoever. Um, he is. Um, I've I've found ways to kind of accommodate i don't want to say it that way because it makes it sound like he's doing bad things i mean he's not um but i will like help him (laughs) to put it cleanly yeah Um,
0: we get what you mean yeah (laughs) (laughs)
2: um in you know in ways um and i think we have a healthy relationship you know he respects my boundaries and i help him at times so it works out um yeah i mean i i don't think I mean, I'm very satisfied in the relationship. And if he's not, he's never said anything. He, In fact, there have actually been times when I've been terrified that he would leave me because there are certain things I can't do. And he has told me that he wouldn't do, like he will never force me to do anything. Like he's not that kind of person. He's not going to leave me because I can't have sex. And that made me feel very comfortable. Um, Yeah, that was something that I kind of had to, I I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Um, It, it was a big character development thing for me is I kind of had to build myself up to be like, it's okay, you know, not all men are sex fiends. You know, if he says this, if he says it's okay that I'm not sexual, then he means it. I, you know, I don't have to change myself. I don't have to put myself into this uncomfortable situation just for him. If he's happy and I'm happy, then it's working out, so.
0: We're really not good, especially over prolonged periods of time. We're not good at lying about stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I think that's cool. Uh, Stacey, do you have anything to
1: add? No. I thought that was very insightful. It's all about people just accepting you for who you are. What is it? Eddie Murphy said you got to find somebody who's as f- up as you are, and that's the perfect person for you. It's like you just find somebody who keeps you for who you are and... and... And it works, right? And there's compromise, of course. I mean, I've been, I don't even know how long I've been married. I can't remember. I think it's 15. I don't know. It's been a while. But uh,
0: lots of. Those large blocks of time just sound like crazy to me. Like my, my aunt's
1: been married for like 40 something years. It's just insane. Um, I went to a 50th anniversary once and I kept saying, so like literally you guys have been together for 50
3: years for like
1: 50 years my in-laws
3: have been they've been married over 50 years yeah
0: like as someone who's 30 years old i can't even comprehend the number i can't comprehend what 50 years is like to be alive no less married um one of the last questions i want to ask all of you is what were your partner's conception well, it's two parts so what was your partner's conceptions of autism when you first met and when you first like started dating and when did you reveal that you're autistic I guess I'll start with Ryan
4: hmm. I don't remember when exactly I did it I do remember in our first year together I went to a family barbecue her family went to Van Cortland Park and apparently some members of her family knew there was something different about me right from the get-go. They could just look and see it.
0: Yeah, you're white in a family of Puerto Rican people. That was the difference. <laughs>
4: uh, yeah, well, yes, but. So I think she she told me that, and then I just kind of revealed that I was autistic to her and explained it. She took it well, as, as well as I think anyone doesn't understand it could. Like she, didn't, she didn't really have any preconceived notions or judgments, which is nice.
0: That's... That's that's good to hear. Cause that's something like I'm terrified. Like I never like I hold off revealing to chicks that like I'm on the spectrum until the last possible moment. By last possible moment I mean I have a meltdown and shit goes sideways and I have to explain it, which I know isn't good, but like like I said, I've had women tell me, Oh, I won't I felt bad for you because you were autistic. Uh, mm-hmm. a lot of people believe that like autistic people can't give consent. So it's like a dude being autistic is like the least sexy thing for a lot of women. So I had to learn, like, just keep on the wraps and try to act as normal as possible. And that never ends well. <laughs> I'll just tell you that right now. It did not end well. But like, I- I'm just terrified. Yes, because...
4: Hold the stick of dynamite. It'll blow up eventually. You I know. know?
0: It's, it's like, well, I'm, ter- like it look, I- I'm terrified though, because they're just like, when they think autism. They think like we all know. They think they think the meltdown videos they see on Facebook because everyone needs to post their kids' meltdowns. Like we all don't know what one looks like, so they think, oh, suddenly their view of me changes. I know a
1: lot of autistic dudes I've talked to had that issue as well. I'm gonna get you on the the Bachelor. We'll have the first autistic, neurodivergent Bachelor, and we'll find Torin. <laughs> I would rather <laughs> I would rather shove my head in a beehive's nest.
0: I it's would rather so wait ridiculous. in line. I would rather so I would ridiculous. rather get an apartment at the DMV. I would rather oh. get an old oh expense paid trip to Bakhmoo than ever be on one of those. Anyway, same question for you, uh, Brandy. What uh, what was your partner's conception of autism? When did you reveal it? I know
3: it's. I think it's you know because I'm late diagnosed. You know it's a little different. It, it was actually I think a positive for us because. When I, well, it's been probably eight, seven or eight years or something like, probably seven years. And so, when you know, when I told him, and I think a lot of my past behavior started making sense. Like, I think, um, you know, I think it was really beneficial because I was able to start understanding how to support myself, and then I was able to tell him, like, like, I was able to start learning the words to explain what was happening inside me. Because, you know, early in our relationship, if we would have a disagreement, I would like just be like this, like shut down. You know, I was like, especially in my 20s, I was more, I shut down more than melted down. But I mean, I melted down occasionally, but I would be more like literally locked up like a rock, you yeah. know, and able to talk. And so, you know, after like having the knowledge in my brain of like, okay, wait a second, this explains everything for my entire life (laughs) um and I was able to not only support myself but tell him well this is what's happening and this is why I'm behaving this way and you know I think it's helped and again it's always a journey like you know nothing's gonna ever be perfect but I I feel like it was beneficial like I mean at first he of course we I'm not going to talk too long because I, I will do that but (laughs)
0: oh don't worry feel free to no one no one tells us like how long we can make these
3: (laughs) I just I I don't want to monopolize I feel like I'm being selfish but um so my youngest I have a brother who's 13 years younger than me he got diagnosed as Asperger's when they were still using that term um and I you know so I was like in my very early like 22 or something like that when that happened and you know I (laughs) you know of course you read oh they're they're not affectionate. They're very dry, like all the all the bullshit, right? Yeah. I'm like, that's not true. He's just like me. He's this. He's that. You know. And um, so from you know, that was really my first interaction with the the world of autism when my my youngest brother got diagnosed. Him being having the advantage of being born in the 90s instead of the early 80s, and and the way the world has changed. Um. So my first, you know, he was there through all of that. That was, you know, early in our relationship. And so, yeah, Um, my own perspective, just with my son and, you know, like educating myself and then all, all of a sudden like going wait, and then talking to, you know, doctors, like all the, you know, therapists, all those people. And anyway, yeah. So I think both of us have grown tremendously in our amount of knowledge that we have on it. And thankfully he's willing to learn and grow too because I think that's a problem. Like when you have a parent that one parent is like ready to dive in, but the other parent still is fighting the the um stereotypes and they don't want to like change their mind on it. Um, which I have friends, you know, who the couples are at different levels on their acceptance and stuff like that. But I think, you know, he he does try and understand again, you know, it's always a thing, but I I ugh, long story short, I, I feel like it's been beneficial just because now I can understand and explain and ask for help in a way that is more supportive for me. So yeah, I just think, I think that we've both just educated ourselves so much and it's helped just understanding ourselves, the kids, just everything. And like trying to learn that better communication and meeting needs and accommodations and not getting mad at me when I'm like, can you turn that down? (laughs) Because that's that's the phrase that my family likes to joke. I'm always like, Can you turn that down?
0: <laughs> For me, it's turning up because I'm deaf in one ear. Erica, what do you got?
2: Uh, my story is very similar to Brandy's. Um, we, my partner and I, um, when we started hanging out and then dating, autism wasn't really known that well like culturally, like it was like, you know, it was around, but you didn't hear about it very often. We didn't start hearing about it until, well, I had a nephew who was born in uh, 2010 and he was diagnosed autistic very soon, like infancy. Um, And then my partner, you know, he's a school teacher and then he would start having students who were diagnosed as autistic so it was around 2010 2011 when we started learning more about autism and like you know we would look it up and there'd be a checklist of like you know 50 traits you know you might be autistic if you fit you know if 40 out of these 50 traits define you know if if they fit you you might be autistic and i would read them and i'm like like 48 of these are me so am i autistic (laughs) so we kind of discovered Together, but yeah, I'm probably autistic.
0: I think I th- think that's great, and I know I said this would be the last question, but I, there's one more I just had to ask all of you. um I guess we'll, we'll start the opposite way. We'll start with Erica. What? How do? How do you and your partner deal with things like meltdowns and sensory overload?
2: Um, I don't get those very often, honestly. I, I think part of that is having a lot of control of my life um like I, I'm never really in like forced into situations where that might happen like where I would get a sens- sensory overload I spend a lot of time at home I don't have a lot of like I'm not forced to socialize with people um yeah it, it honestly just doesn't happen to me
0: no I'm glad you say that because I'm constantly hammering home on this podcast how much controlling your environment means and if you're a parent and your kid's constantly melting down like i mean meltdowns are gonna happen but i mean constantly it's because mm-hmm. you're not controlling their environment well because they're kids they're not going to be able to control their own stuff that's your job to make sure they're not constantly in situations they're draining their spoons and giving them sens- negative sensory inputs mm-hmm. but uh brandy since you've mentioned it a few times in this episode uh how do you deal with sensorial and you have kids too so how you deal with yourself your partner your kids like with meltdowns and sensory overload
3: um I don't melt down that much either um I mean I do occasionally um I really try to if I feel it coming on and I'm not able to prevent it I do my best to like shut myself in a room and then like throw some pillows at the wall and you know because I don't you know I don't want I I'm very honest about emotions with my kids but I also don't want like, obviously you can't always prevent it, but let me think. So, you know, it comes down to like me having learning to speak up before it starts getting to that point. Like, and I say flat out, I said, I need to stop this right now because I'm reaching the point of no return is what I say. <laughs> like I'm like, I, I need, I love when I, and when I tell the kids and everything, I said, I love you so much, but right now mommy's feeling very overwhelmed. I need to have some time to myself and, you know, he knows too. And, and, you know, and he's worked so much, like I said, but like in the evenings, he takes my son into his office and closes the door so that I don't hear the iPad. I don't, you know, all of that. Like, you know, I have my earplugs, my headphones, all of that. So it's like, you know, I, but I, it really took me being brave enough to speak up for myself. Like this is too much for me. And I have to be able to do that to, and And that really helps like just saying, I, I have to stop now. I'll literally be like, I'm going to stop now. I'm going to walk away now because I, I feel really close to losing it. And so it's just being able to identify it and say, I, I'm done here and, and walk out. You know, like, this is why I tell people too about their kids and, and I'm sure you've seen me tweet it is like, I rather walk away mm-hmm. versus say something I'm gonna regret later um, because I'm losing my cool. And so that's always my goal is to be like, I, I'm done here, I'm seriously done here. Please, like, I need five minutes, 10 minutes of space at a minimum before I can't, can't come back from this, you know? So and yeah. What I, mean. I what I hear,
1: Brandy, I'm so sorry, is that you're, de- you're modeling proactive self-advocacy. I mean, that's what you're modeling and that's what everyone should learn to do. And our kids do it all the time they just don't get the autonomy to get out of it. I mean, I, they, they say all the time I can't or wait. Right. Right. The teacher says, no, 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 you got to do it now. Or the therapist. Um, But they are self advocating. So I think it's wonderful that you are um, modeling that because that's good. They're they're, they're they're kids though. So it's
0: okay to ignore them. (laughs) And then blame them when they melt down.
3: No, Stacy, you're, you're so right. And that's to me, That's what I tell people all the time. I said it's very important because how will your children learn the language of expressing their needs Mm -hmm. if you don't show them your own vulnerabilities? Obviously, there's age appropriateness. I'm not going to like dump all of the worst things in my life on my children right now, but like it's so it's so nice to me when my daughter can come up to me or or my son who will type it you know on his device and say I'm overwhelmed. I'm like okay, thank you for like sometimes all you need to be able to do is say you're overwhelmed. Like so often, especially him being non-speaking. He just needs to be able to type and get his feelings out. And that will help bring him back from being overwhelmed is he just needs to get it out of his brain, out of his body. And so I, you're right. I try and model it for them and show them that it's okay to have big feelings, but like, and also it's also a lesson in consent. When mom says, I am done here, you stop poking, stop poking the bear. (laughs) Like when mom says, I love you, I'm done. I need space you give her space because there you're my child and I love you and, I, and I'll do anything for you, but you also have to respect me as a human being, just like my goal is to respect you. But when mom says she's done, she is done. And I need you to listen to that. So yeah, I want to, I feel like it's an element of consent as well as modeling the behavior for them. Mm-hmm.
0: So I want to specify also, when I say meltdowns, not every autistic person melts down to a lot of people shut down. A lot of people just trauma dump so for me for example i don't really melt down per se but what happens is i'll just and ryan's seeing this i'll just start complaining and complaining and complaining about everything wrong with my life and like vomit like the like the the bar scene in team america world police it's awful i've lost a relationship because of that because they didn't understand that was that's what was happening and like i just can't control it so it took me up until probably like last year to realize that was my form of melting down because i just can't control it Well, Ryan, what I've seen a lot with you is you shut down more than because you're not you're not like the angry throw a chair type stuff. But like, how do you and your girl deal with times when you're overwhelmed and shutting down?
4: My coping thing right now is if I can usually feel what it's about to happen, I can like usually I'll just get very, very anxious right up to the moment where I feel like I'm about to lose it. And then I have to stop and just do a bunch of breathing exercises which actually helps helps like calm the heart rate down, get your mind together. But me and my girlfriend have been together for so long. She knows what I'm about to shut down or melt down before I do sometimes, And so she's good at like, just helping me get my mind straight. And she's kind of figured me out before I figured myself out. No, I yeah, think... I got...
0: Sorry.
3: No, I was going to say I, it's like that. with My spouse, like, cause I, I don't understand, like, I don't really get hunger cues. You know when my body's like feed me until I get like hangry. Like I joke I'm a walking Snickers commercial. And so he's like, "Have you eaten?" And I'm all like, "Oh crap."
0: <laughs> Wait, you don't get hungry? <laughs> I, I you need to teach me how to do that because I'm always hungry. I'm literally never no, that it hungry.
3: Sucks. It sucks. I literally have um, t- reminders on my calendar that will pop up on my watch to tell me to eat something because I don't feel it. It's and I'm not going to go the whole story, but for the most part, I don't feel it until it affects me emotionally. And, but then I have a hard time focusing on anything and I don't have the spoons to make food. But it, just saying on the fact of your spouse, like seeing it before you do is he'll be like, he can tell I'm hangry <laughs> and I'm starting to lose it. Um, and so he'll be like, do you need to eat something? Like, have you eaten? When was, what did, what did you last eat? Like, cause like, he'll see that and I won't see it myself until he points it out. I'm like, oh, okay. All right, I see it. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, we're reaching up against time. Is there Mm -hmm. anything any of you guys would like to say? Anything, Stacey? I know I'm sorry, Stacey. I ate up a lot of the talking time today.
4: It was perfectly fine. This was good. I got some good insight. Anything you guys would like to say before we go? Yeah, I got something. My old biology professor in college said the two greatest threats to humanity.
0: And Stacey, that's why we're working too. I'm just screwing with you, Ryan. Go.
4: (laughs) He always said the two greatest threats to humanity were ignorance and apathy. I don't know, and I don't care. Like, we really have to break through that, really just about everything, because that's really the big issue, ignorance, and not caring enough to try and learn better.
1: That is so true, Ryan. I was in a meeting today, and this principal had the whatever... Uh, terminology attached to it, but he said, well, yeah, you know, um, I, I've i uh, worked with lots of autistic kids and my background is special ed, which to me, that's a red flag that you don't know squat because if you yeah. did, you say something like that. So then I said to him, oh, okay. So then why weren't his supports in place? If you know, why weren't his supports in place? Well, of course there was no answer. Um, but it, you're right. It's the ignorance, but the not willing to want to is the part that just drives me crazy it literally drives me crazy i remember a pupil appraisal evaluated to school this was years ago and um, she was refusing to do the proper diagnosis and we were in the hallway and she said you know stacy i'm so sorry i just i don't really know you know a lot about autism and i said i don't have a problem with the fact that you, know, you, you don't know i have a problem with you're not trying to know when it's part of your damn job it's part of your job why are you not trying to know? Like not knowing, okay, fine. I didn't know, but then I had to learn, right? Why aren't you doing that? That takes that's work That
0: takes yeah. work.
1: Well, you took a job. Children are depending on you. Don't let me get started on that. All right. Valentine's relationships, Brandy, go.
3: <laughs> oh, oh, I wanted to, I hope it's okay. I wanted to touch on something that's been in my brain so that, that you mentioned specifically, Stacey, is about. People um, and they're they're concerned about their children having relationships. Okay, um, what I what I would say to other parents, you know, both as an autistic person and a mother of, you know, neurodivergent children with all the letters, but um, is like a don't make assumptions. Cause you don't know how your child's book will be written. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was a teenager, like I had no real interest in relationships, like I was totally clueless to people flirting with me. I I had no idea what was happening, right? But I mean, now I'm 39 and I've learned because that's what human beings do. So yep. don't make assumptions about your seven-year-old child, what they're gonna be like as an adult. But what you teach them is how to understand their brain, how mm-hmm. to support their brain, how to mm-hmm. advocate for themselves, and you know how to protect themselves and then you give them opportunities to meet their people you know like that and and don't put the expectations on your children like the only expectation or i don't you know what i want for my children is that they find balance in their lives Mm -hmm. so whatever that looks like if that looks like a long-term relationship or college or not college or travel whatever whatever like don't put the expectations but ask fact-finding questions How do they feel? Let them lead the thing, but just stop making assumptions about what your child's future is going to look like. Because if you looked at me as a child and looked at me now, nobody would have thought I am where I am right now, you know? So it's just like, stop making assumptions and just teach your child how to uplift and protect themselves and find their people. And then the rest will work itself out when you give your child a healthy foundation. That is true. Thank you.
0: Well, um, I think that's it. I think that's a great way to end it. And thank you all for being on once again. All of their stuff will be in the description. I hope to have this episode out by Monday before Valentine's Day. That's <laughs> aspirational. I just want to say that right now. That is aspirational. But I'll be working uh, this weekend to edit it. And Stacy, that's why we're working to... Shift the narrative on everything autism. See ya.